This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to analyst Aris Kader and he's going to be explaining to us why Turkey is bombing Iraqi Kurdistan. Now you might remember last week there was this horrific video that went around Twitter where basically there's a Kurdish family playing uh, in the river in Suleymaniyya and a Turkish drone strike hits just 20 meters away. Many of them were injured, the kids had shrapnel embedded in them, one woman lost her legs, it was horrible. There's a whole history behind this situation, it's very complicated and there's a lot to be said about why Turkey is bombing right next to civilians and all of that. So Ariz is going to explain that to us, hopefully it will make sense. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting at patreon.com slash popular front. So there was the the airstrike recently, right? It was all, it was all over Twitter, where um, well, it's like a, a family is just playing in uh, I think the river right near Sulaimania. Everyone goes there, right? It's like a tourist, well, not even a tourist. It's like a family destination, right? Where people play with their kids in the river and what have you. And then on this video, we see this airstrike. You don't see the airstrike. You hear the airstrike. And then you can see a bit of shrapnel, like, hits the water near the child and the mother. You hear the bam, all the kids are screaming. I believe uh, a woman lost her legs. One of the children is injured. Um, It's a fucking horrible situation. But a lot of people were saying, you know, not people weren't quite you know aware of what was going on in the situation there people were saying well why is turkey bombing iraq because this is northern iraq iraqi kurdistan the krg so i think but let's just start there why is turkey hitting airstrikes in uh, in kurdistan in iraqi kurdistan airstrikes have been going on for a while but it's connected to uh, turkish um, i mean turkish operations in northern iraq uh, generally i mean they do it in both in kurdistan and uh, some of them outside of the kurdistan region so you'll have airstrikes in shingal uh, sinjar that is and in mahmur camp as well uh, it's connected to the larger turkish uh, fight against the pkk um, they've been conducting ground incursions as well as airstrikes since about the, the mid 90s or maybe early 90s uh, well, early '90s, they they did just incursions. They just go in and uh, shoot about a bit, try to uh, make sure that the PKK wasn't able to conduct um, raids uh, across into the border. But later on, they tried to you know you know to as the PKK became more established in Kandil and uh, uh, northern uh, Iraqi Kurdish uh, mountain areas. The, these operations kind of grew in size and in scope, and uh, that they've kind of morphed into what you'll see today. So you've got, I mean, at the moment they've got two operations going on uh, under the the claw banner. Uh, Turkey's always, you know, in my mind, Turkey's probably the most interesting uh, military out there. And when it comes to names, they name their operations pretty hilarious things at times. They'll be like, uh, oh, there's an olive there, the olive branch, you know. Uh, so they've called this one Claw. Eagle, Eagle Claw, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's two operations, basically. It's, uh, Eagle Claw is the, the aerial uh, bom- bom- uh, bombing campaign. Uh, hence Eagle, I guess. And the other one's uh, or Claw Eagle, rather. But they've got Claw Tiger as well, uh, which is the ground incursion uh, operation, the, the TSK, so the Turkish Armed Forces, and uh, some special kind of uh, gendarmerie uh, units as well. The, uh, they're doing the the ground operations, so they're doing the incursion and uh, 
occupying more and more kind of hills in uh, border villages. Uh, so that's that component, and um, the the airstrike that you you mentioned before. I mean, they've been conducting these airstrikes for a while now, and uh, they've gotten a lot more sophisticated. I mean, in the past, it used to be that they would use uh, Anka drones and stuff. So they, the Anka drones used to be unarmed. So they use these massive drones, O'Haran drones, and uh, they would uh, scope an area out. And if they found, uh, you know, a camp or an outpost or whatever, they would relay that information to TSK forces, and they would uh, do an incursion like 20 minutes later or so. But within 20 minutes, these guys are gone. So it wasn't always that uh, that useful. But now they've got armed drones. They've got the Badaktar and other uh, more armed uh, Anka-type drones. Um, so they've been a lot more, uh, you know, ag aggressive and uh, in, go in going after PKK members and leaders. Um, and, you know, the, the benefit of that is you, you get videos as well. So it's interesting for them. Uh, these last airstrikes happened in Kunamasi. I mean, th these are the ones that Twitter found out about. Um, Kunamasi is this, you know, it's, like you said, it's a tourist area. It's a place that, where I've been uh, tons of times. Me and my family used to go there all, all the time. Um, and it's basically, you know, just a, a river kind of area with uh, a valley and um, maybe a, a waterfall or two. And it's, uh, it's an innocent place. And what seems to have happened was one of the PKK caters, so it's a guy from some, you know, he's a, I don't know if he's a fighter or if he's a, a guy who gets people's stuff, but he went down to the shops to get something and he's driven down there. And as he gets out, um, an airstrike hits him and possibly also the, the shop that he uh, entered. And uh, it immediately kills him, uh, but it also injures a bunch of uh, civilians. I mean, what you see in the video is down by the river. It, it's about 20 meters away from where the shop seems to have been. And in the shop, uh, you've got the shopkeeper and his wife and their kids. And the, the kids, I mean, one of them uh, got shrapnel in his head, and the other one uh, apparently didn't get uh, seriously injured, but is in shock. Uh, the guy himself got shrapnel in his chest, uh, so he's the, the store owner, and his wife uh, sadly lost her leg as well. So, I mean, there's a, a, quite a lot of civilian uh, casualties and injuries um, from just one airstrike. Incredibly reckless to, hit, uh, to drop an airstrike in an area like that as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with drones, right? That you don't have that risk. It's the same thing that happened with the US in the, in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, once you kind of outsource that uh, the, that ability to kill, because you, you can't surrender to a drone, right? You, you can't go, okay, I'm sorry, you know, uh, stop, I, I surrender. You, you can't do that. The only reason you've got drones is to, drones is to kill. Um, so you using drones is lethal, at all times, you can't use them for anything else. So it's it, it is uh, reckless, but it it's also not something that gets relayed back into the Turkish public. So when you do have uh, civilian casualties, because you had some in 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 Turkey as well, inside Turkey, you had there was a, a pretty famous case with three guys who lived in this uh, village in I think it's Şirnak, one of the border provinces, and. Uh, They've gone uh, for um, just a picnic, and this isn't even a military area, so this is just a general kind of open spot. You've got checkpoints and stuff everywhere, but that's just southeast Turkey. 
So they uh, they go to this uh, picnic area, and uh, on the way there, literally like 300 meters from uh, where they uh, picnic, they got you know checked for IDs, and then they got killed. And uh, they were civilians. I mean, it was obvious from they're from the village they're going for a picnic, and uh, media in Turkey reported them as PKK uh, fighters. Um, and their families, I mean, obviously the families are really upset. And they've tried their best to, to get um, some sort of clarity and uh, explanation for why their, you know, fam- family got killed. And uh, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't really gone anywhere. But that's not an isolated case either. So, so Turkey doesn't really admit to, to many civilian ca- casualties it, normally. I mean, they did now. It seems like uh, because it happened in Iraqi Kurdistan, and uh, Kurds have been pretty upset uh, in the area. I mean, it's it's a place that's politically sensitive for Turkey anyway to, to conduct any kind of operations. Uh, they've gotten really upset, so they've admitted to some uh, civilian casualties. I think they admitted to five people that have gotten killed so far. Uh, but the, the guy, I, I spoke to a journalist in the area, and he, he told me that uh, combined, I think they've counted something like 28 people have gone killed just in one area. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a lot. So when this happened, right, I had people asking me that, you know, weren't fully aware of the situation with Kurdistan and the different factions. And people were saying to me, like, oh, well, why is, you know, how is this happening? And, you know, there was some talk that the KRG had met with, uh, you know, Turkey before this, uh, the KRG being the what Kurdish Kurdistan regional government, the people that are running this autonomous zone in, in northern Iraq, the Kurdish areas. And basically they had kind of agreed with Turkey from what we understand that, yeah, they can do this airstrike. So people are saying, why is Kurds letting Turkey bomb Kurds? So I think maybe, um, Aris, like maybe, maybe you can explain all of that to us. There's a very interesting, very intricate, you know, factionalism between the PKK, the KRG, PUK, Barzani's, all of that. Maybe you can just kind of lay that out on the table for us a little bit i mean how much time have you got because i mean it's i mean within northern iraq or kurdistan the kurdistan regional government or the kurdistan region rather you've got three main actors you've got the kdp which is the kurdistan democratic party and uh, they're run by um masoud barzani who's still the president of the party technically and then you've got uh, nechiban barzani and masoud barzani they're both the head of the government in the presidency and the prime ministership. Uh, so they're the, the main kind of political actor. Uh, and uh, they've, they've got a very good relationship to Turkey. So they're reliant on Turkey as well for diplomatic support and economic uh, relations as well. So they've got a border um, that Turkey controls. Um, and uh, since relations with the Kurdistan region and, the, and Baghdad aren't always great, the, the, it's critical that they have this relationship with Turkey, uh, no matter what. But then you've got the P- UK as well, which is the um, Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, which is a pretty interesting name. Um, the, uh, you've got the, the Talibani family. So you've got Jalal Talibani, which used to be the president of uh, Iraq before he died. Uh, he's a member, he was the member of the, that party and the founder of the party. And uh, they've, those two parties together um, run the, the KRG, so they are the Kurdistan regional government, and you've got a bunch of smaller parties that kind of really don't get to say anything. Then you've got the PKK, and the PK, PKK exists outside of this, so they don't, they're not part of government. Um, what they are is a militant kind of political organization 
that works outside of these boundaries. I mean, they're there because of a lot of reasons. I mean, they're there basically because they weren't allowed to be in Turkey. It was it was really hard to be in Turkey, and then they got based in Syria, and they also sent some people to Iraq and Lebanon and a few other places. And when they were done in Syria, when they were asked to leave or rather told to leave, um, in the late 90s, they all moved basically into to Iraq. So they've got the Kendil, Mount, Kendil Mountains is uh, where they're raised. And the the Kendil Mountains is basically, I mean, it's inhospitable. It's not really strategic in any sense for the 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 PUK or the KDP. They don't really need anything there. It doesn't really have any resources or a lot of large population or anything like that. So they they didn't really they weren't really there to begin with. So the um, PKK used that as in a you know a base for themselves, and now they're quite well trenched. Um, but then you've also got this kind of dynamic because they were not, they weren't invited in and they don't really adhere to any kind of political dealings in Iraqi Kurdistan. They don't really want to be part of government. They want to be government. So they run their own areas and they create their own kind of structures. And that pisses a lot of people off, uh, in the Kurdistan region. Uh, there's, there's been quite a lot of conflict between primarily the the KDP and the PKK, where the KDP has been backed by Turkey. I mean, there were a few, I think it was 97 was, maybe even 94. I think 94 was the first time uh, they fought, but both the PUK and the KDP, I think, helped um, with a kind of a Turkish-led offensive against the, the PKK. It didn't really, nothing really happened. I mean, uh, it was it was hard ground to cover, and there weren't drones around, so it was quite difficult ter- territory. You're about the Turkish armed forces when they went into Kandil, essentially, like the ground operations. Yeah, I mean, they, this was one of the first ones. They they did that, and the, the Kurdish parties were part of it. And uh, I mean, there was a civil war that happened afterwards that made a lot of these kind of offensive war Kurds would find other Kurds a lot less attractive. Uh, so you've got the term Brakuji, which basically means I mean, brother killing, and uh, the. It's yeah. I mean, that's the name of the the civil war, basically. So they uh, they it made it a lot less uh, you know uh, popular to fight the the PKK or any other Kurdish group. So in the ninety seven there was another one. They even got. Uh, I mean, ninety seven was an interesting year for the KDP. They did a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, they fought the PKK, and they got Turkish help to do it, and it was unsuccessful as well. The KDP lost a lot of. Fighters, the PKK didn't really admit to much. I think they admitted to something like 150 fighters were killed, something like that. Uh, so there's been this history of uh, Kurdish fighting, but the, in recent years it's really died down uh, quite a lot. The KDP hasn't has, is trying to play kind of a uh, more conciliatory role between both Turkey and the PKK, um, as as well as trying to get the PKK to stop fighting Turkey. I mean, they they would really love the PKK to, to leave, basically. They would like them to stop fighting Turkey and leave Iraqi Kurdistan somehow. Um, not sure that's going to happen. Yeah, well, maybe explain why KDP can't do that. Because for some people, they'll see it as, well, you know, KDP is the government. They can just get rid of the PKK. But obviously, Kandil is very much not like that. Um, I mean, Jesus, the, the terrain... God forbid anyone that's trying to go in there on the ground, like, it's crazy. So why is it then that, you know, PKK are like, no, we're staying here in Kandil and, you know, no one can really get them out? I mean, it's a fortress. If you've ever been in the area, I don't I don't know if you've been, uh, I mean, you know, you know it's, it's a fortress. It's it's steep, 
mountain area uh, with valleys in between and it's all a terrain that the PKK knows uh, really really well intimately they know every kind of nook and cranny they know everyone who lives there they know every village um, they've got a lot of local contacts uh, a lot of information that goes in and out they know if something's happening um, they'll be able to mobilize really quickly and they're I mean they've been fighting uh, NATO's second largest army for decades so they've got a lot of experience as well uh, they're really tough fighters as well as they know how to evade uh, capture evade uh, helicopters and stuff like that they even have um, I mean they, they've gotten supplies from here and there Iran at some point has been um, you know alleged to have supported them here you know maybe Iraq, who knows, Syria uh, did it uh, one time as well. So they've got a lot of, um, uh, you know, the black market type weaponry as well. So it, it's not e easy to get to them. I've seen a few, uh, I don't know if it was RPG-7s or if it was actually manpads that they used to fight, the, to shoot down some helicopters at some point. So it, it hasn't been easy to sail any of these places. And the KDP... I mean, uh, they've got a lot of training recently, and at times they've been efficient fighters, but they, the, the PKKs is at a different level. I mean, experience-wise, they, they really were very, very different. So it was, it was impossible. It, it's changed now, though. I mean, with, with drones, uh, the entire kind of landscape looks different. The, the PKK used to be able to launch attacks into Turkey quite, re you know, uh, quite uh, freely almost. Uh, which was a headache for Turkey. I mean, last I think it was two thousand eleven. They launched this massive attack. You know, lots lots of simultaneous attacks all over uh, southeast Turkey uh, against border points. Um, they haven't done anything like that uh, for a while, and that's because they can't. Uh, these drones really are quite efficient at uh, keeping the PKK away. Yeah, in terms of talking about PKK fight in Turkey. Obviously, like the like you said, the the cross border incursions are, are like kind of less. But what we did see last year, I remember it because I just got to fucking Iraq and was about to cross into Syria when it happened, and everything got turned on its head when PKK killed one of the um, Turkish. I can't remember was it diplomat or what? Basically, they, they killed a Turkish politician right in uh, Erbil, if I if I remember correctly. So maybe you can talk a bit about like the PKK's relationship with the krg like with uh with the kdp sorry because that is quite interesting like yeah they'll do it they can't do the attacks there but they feel free to just go and do these attacks still in erbil essentially in the heart of kdp territory i mean the, the pkk basically i mean i mean i'll try not to be i guess too blunt with some of this stuff but they, they really do feel like they can do whatever they like uh, saying that is probably going to upset a lot of kind of internet Kurds somewhere, but um, but it's true. I, I mean, they they don't really feel privy to anything. They don't feel like they have to. Um, uh, you know, they say basically this is Kurdistan, right? So we're Kurdish. This is Kurdistan. So we get to do what we like. Well, I mean, we've got just as much right um, to run this as you do. I mean, it's a fair point, in, in, to be honest. In some degree, do you know what I mean? When they're getting, like, airstrike from their enemies. It, it does, but, I mean, the, at the same time, Iraqi Kurdistan has been through a lot. Uh, to be, I mean, to be fair, they've been through the Anfal genocide. They've uh, been fighting constantly. So, I mean, not, not constantly, but mostly since, like, the 40s. It hasn't been a rosy place to live. 
and finally, now there's some sort of a semblance of local governance. I mean, look, Kurdish is the national language. You've got a lot of this stuff that was hard fought, and it isn't permanent. I mean, it, it's not like this. None of these rights last forever, uh, and they don't. Uh, rights don't last unless there's some sort of force behind it. So if you continue to, you know, uh, launch attacks to Turkey, and there's no so you know sense of uh, um, you know, the pushback against it in any way. Turkey will just invade. I mean, why wouldn't they? They've invaded anywhere they want, and no one's been able to stop them. So why wouldn't they just occupy the KRG completely, like the KRI completely? Um, and that's the fear that a lot of these uh, people do have. I mean, the K KDP, you can say whatever you like about them, I mean, and, and you probably will, and probably a lot of people would, and they'd be justified in a lot of it. But the, there is the point in that they make in that this is kind of, this is a, a safe place to be as a Kurd. If you live in the, the KRA, you can speak your language, you can learn it, you can uh, freely express uh, your, your culture, your history, and you're not afraid of any of that. That would be different under Turkish occupation. Uh, if you look at a frame or anything uh, like that, you'll see what the effects of Turkish op occupation is. It's not rosy, it's not great. So to avoid that, um, I mean, it's logical to say that you would want the PKK to stop uh, fighting Turkey, but at the same time, I mean, I, per, on a personal level, I would say, yeah, okay, cool, the, you want the PKK to stop fighting Turkey, but you also, at the same time, have to push for Kurdish rights in Turkey. If you're not doing that at the same time, then what are you, what are you saying, basically? I mean, are you just saying that Kurds should stop uh, fighting for their rights in, in Turkey? I mean, no, no, obviously you shouldn't. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you could agree with the KRG in saying that fighting Turkey makes Turkey kind of push further into Iraqi Kurdistan, and, and it does. But at the same time, if you're not doing anything about Kurdish rights in Turkey, then you don't really have much of, a, much of an argument. Yeah, it's a weird situation. Um, I agree, but at the same time, it's like, I, I mean, how, how, what I think is this, like, it's a weird situation when I saw when all this happened and a lot of um, Kurds online were saying, like, how can Barzani let this happen? Why are they letting Turkey bomb people? And some of Barzani's children were on Twitter saying, like, well, what can we do? And I was like, fucking hell, what a cop-out. But then when you think about it, he's kind of right. It's like, what can they actually do? They can't do anything, which then makes me think, well, what is the KRG actually? Is it an autonomous zone or is it, you know what I mean? They just, I mean, how many military, Turkish military bases are there now in, in the KRG? It's hard to say. I mean, they, I think the last report I read, and this was about a year ago, was something like 17 confirmed bases. I mean, they've got lots of outposts, but some of them aren't manned. They'll even put, I mean, I've, I've seen some video of someone that walked past one and they've put a mannequin there, you know, to make it look like someone's there. So the outposts, yeah, exactly. So the outposts, I wouldn't take that seriously, but they've got lots of bases, something like 17 official ones. Um, and now with uh, the Claw Tiger, they've occupied something like, I think they've pushed in up to 20 kilometers further into Iraqi Kurdistan. So that's a lot. Uh, when it's a quite a long border, and uh, I think I'm, I rem I might remember wrongly, but the, the I think Turkish armed forces said something like twenty bases would be built in, in this area. Yeah, I mean it's a lot, it's a huge amount. 
And they're not leaving. We all know, you know, we all know once Turkey get there, their boots are on the ground, they don't leave. It's not like an operational thing. They don't leave. It's, it's part of the expansion. My point is, like, I can understand how, like, there are other people. You know, I've got a lot of friends over there that are just like, this is fucking mental. Like, we just can't. They're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, essentially. Do you know what I mean? You've got the PKK are fighting. KIG, deeply corrupt, not paying people, but also rich and can't stop Turkey. It just seems to me like a very, I don't know, it's a bit of a powder keg, it seems to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah it is. Definitely is. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to do anything. I mean, y- maybe online, uh, some kid or whatever, or someone who's not really uh, it, that very very into Kurdish politics is going to say, like you said, you know, uh, why aren't they doing any, anything? They're killing Kurd civilians and, and so on. They've done some things. They have uh, allowed, uh, you know, or allowed rather asked for Iraqi border forces to come to uh, border areas uh, just to make sure that the Turks don't feel too comfortable pushing further in. Uh, so they've done some of this stuff because uh, let's be you know, honest, Turkey doesn't really care about the KDP. If the KDP pushes a, a few Peshmerga up there, uh, they're just going to push them to the side to walk through them. Or what are the, what are the Peshmerga going to do? Shoot at them? No, they're not. Um, but they do feel less comfortable, you know, pushing at a official Iraqi border forces, uh, people that they'd like to actually have a good relationship with. Um, and, I mean, they would like to pretend that Iraq is, you know, this sovereign country that the territorial integrity has to be kept. And it looks bad when you're pushing border forces, right? Uh, so they, they, they've done s- stuff like that. They have said, you know, official statements have been put out where they p- put out, you know, both sides kind of statement. Like, uh, we would like the PKK to leave and we would like Turkey to stop with its airstrikes. You know, basically saying nothing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, wasn't it, from what I read, I think it's Iraq, Iran, the KDP, all kind of agreed, right, that, yeah, Turkey can do this, which is quite a big situation. Like, even Iran has been bombing, like, you know, PJAK, like PKK, uh, HRK guerrillas in the in the Iranian areas near near Kandil, like, or, or near Iraq, Iraq, whatever. Like, it's, it's all, it seems like a lot of empty talk because I think they've already kind of had the decision. Yeah, I mean, it's limited what anyone can do. If it, if you go back to like the Kurdish referendum that happened in uh, 2017, I hope it was 2017, my memory's not great. But uh, immediately afterwards, Turkey basically shut the border, Iran shut the border, and Iraqi Kurdistan was, you know, at risk of starving. They coordinate on things like this. Like this, anything that happens uh, that could potentially alter the the Kurdish situation, they coordinate on. Why wouldn't they? They've all got huge Kurdish populations, and they don't want them uh, have getting ideas into their, into their head. The KRG is already a headache for Turkey in in the sense that why would you allow them to have autonomy but not uh, us? I mean, Kurds in Turkey are far more numerous. Why wouldn't that happen? So, I mean, they've already said that they wouldn't allow this this kind of northern Iraq scenario to happen again in Syria, uh, which has been one they've uh, fought really hard, even against their own allies, to make sure that it doesn't happen. Iran, uh, I mean, kind of quietly, because you, you pay attention to the Turkish airstrikes, but Iran's been pushing about 10 kilometers in on their side of the border with ground troops. 
Really? I, I wasn't aware. They've been pushing into Bash, in, into Iraqi Kurdistan. Yeah, I mean, they, I'm not sure if they, they kind of went permanently, but about 10Ks in, they got with, with uh, you know, that's a, a journalist told me this. I haven't been on the ground myself, but, uh, uh, but this has been happening on the Iranian side. And uh, at times, the Iranians would, will also, you know, assassinate Kurdish leaders in in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, so they'll um, send someone to kill kind of a K- KDPI uh, leader or, or whatever, or even in Iran, in Europe. Or I think recently they had uh, one of the former KDPI members, uh, leaders in, uh, in uh, I think it was the Netherlands, he got stabbed. Um, numerous times by some uh, some kid from Iran. And j- just explain who the KDPI are, because we're, we're getting, as is always, we're in alphabet soup territory. The the Kurdish acronym game is an, a fun game. Like uh, you've got, you do have a lot of groups, and the KDPI is the as you can, might imagine, it's the Kurdistan Democratic Party of Iran. So they're kind of, um, I mean, they're an in- independent party. They're, they're linked to the Barzani's uh, version of the party, but they're they're based in Iran. Or they're based in Iraqi Kurdistan, rather, but they, they're from Iran, and they have to do with with Iran. And they, they've had their leadership in Iraqi Kurdistan, and, and for a time they were safe uh, in some areas, and now they don't seem as safe as they used to be after the referendum. Well, they, they have bases in Kandil as well, like literally down the road from the PKK, so it's all very dangerous for them as well, I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a headache for anyone, right? It's a headache just to remember these names, and it's a headache because you've got a history of inter-Kurdish rivalry as well. So you've got the KDP fighting the PKK, the PKK fighting the KDP, the KDP fighting the PUK, and so on. So it becomes pretty easy to to leverage Kurds against each other. So there's good Kurds, bad Kurds thing. Is, it's I mean it's difficult. Yeah, one of my um like one of my my closest friends, he's a Kurdish guy. He said to me um, once, the biggest enemy of the Kurds is not Turkey, it's other Kurds. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and I kind of laughed, but he was like, no, think about it. I was like, yeah, I get I get what you're saying. Like, it's it's pretty fucked up. It's sad, you know? Yeah, you might be right. So, yeah. so Turkey has been uh, hitting Sinjar as well, which we haven't mentioned yet. They've hit Shengal. Like, why are they doing that? A lot of people are not understanding. Like, why would they hitting the Yazidis after the Yazidis of like, you know, getting over a genocide by ISIS? But of course, there are, you know, PKK-affiliated groups there. You know, um, HR, not HRE, that's Afrin. Um, Jesus, I'm, I'm losing track of the, uh, the fucking... The, the names now uh, the YBS that's what I was thinking of um so but but of course again it's like it's very easy for people to say well why are the PKK there well you know if we look at the history we know what happened the Peshmerga effectively abandoned the the Yazidis and the PKK came down and fought them for ISIS you know what I mean and stopped like tried to stop it but th- again they didn't leave right so I don't know maybe let's go into that why why is uh, Turkey hitting Sinjar as well I mean from Turkey's point of view the the see all these groups as PKK, right? So they don't really care uh, if it's the YPG, if it's the YBS, if it's uh, the Pajak or whatever it is, uh, the TAK or anything. They could consider all these groups PKK. So if you're looking from Tur- Turkey's kind of perspective, you see PKK just spreading around your border. So you've got the Kandil and then you've got uh, Syria and now you've got Sinjar as well. So it's just getting closer and closer to them being kind of surrounded by PKK. And they uh, don't like this, so they 
they obviously consider all these groups the same, so they'll, they'll attack them just the same, no, no matter what. Uh, Sinjar becomes politically, you know, sensitive because it's uh, Yazidis, and they don't want to be seen as fighting Yazidis. But at the same time, they kind of just do it anyway. So uh, they've gotten over that quite quite quickly. The, the, I mean, the, the, the YBS is an interesting project because it doesn't really need to be there, in a way. I mean, if you think about it, they've saved the Yazidis, a lot of the Yazidis, and then they kind of started these um, democratic confederalist-type groups uh, in Sinjar as well. I mean, trying to spread uh, Ojalan thought uh, amongst these groups. And uh, the, the people in the area don't necessarily want that to happen. I mean, if you think about it, uh, Shigal has been destroyed. I mean, it's 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 a wreck. They haven't re- rebuilt anything. People live still living on the mountain. They're living in camps. You know, they uh, most of these people haven't returned to their houses. They're really afraid. They've got all these trauma. Uh, they're con- continuous. They just want to kind of get something um, close to normality. They don't need Turkey on their border. You know, they don't need Turkey to to come invade. Um, and they also don't really. I mean, you, you can say a lot about the Yazidis. I mean, there's a lot to be said about them, but they're quite conservative socially. They're very, very conservative. They keep to themselves and they have very strict kind of hierarchies and ideas of um, men and women and all this stuff. So Erdogan thought uh, with this kind of, uh, uh, you know, very liberal pseudo-anarchist uh, kind of idea, very progressive, it doesn't really appeal to the traditional kind of uh, way of thinking. Mm. But I think I think what appeals less as well is like i think they need security right it, what appeals less is they don't want to get attacked again that's the real deal so they don't really want to be attacked they don't want uh, a fight between the iraqi government and the peshmerga they don't want to fight between turkey and the pkk or the, the ybs or anyone they don't want any of this i mean they're very thankful i mean if you look for uh, for statements from uh, both you know the religious authorities uh, civilian authorities the kind of civilian orgs as well in uh, Sinjar, you, you'll find that they're really grateful to a lot, uh, all kinds of groups. I mean, the PKK especially for what they did, um, and the Iraqi army as well. And uh, uh, even you'll see the one or another mention of the the Peshmerga, not always pos- positive. Um, but but I mean, they 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 really just want to be left alone. So th- this kind of YBS uh, presence, um, it, it it doesn't really seem to be doing uh, much good for them in any case. Uh, but it's all—it's also an excuse for Turkey to, to go, go bomb them. So I don't personally—I don't understand why, why the PKK is there. It's—it uh, has something to do with Syria, of course, and the border there. But at the same time, I mean, if you look at the risk towards civilians and the Yazidis, especially, they've been through a lot. Maybe it's not worth it. That's just my two cents. But then I think you could argue as well if they're not there. I mean, no one else is going to protect them. Like the the, the Peshmerga already, yeah, Peshmerga already abandoned them. Barzani is not interested in really rebuilding their areas, as far as I'm aware. It's kind of like even if they don't like them, I feel like I don't know. It's better to have something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's better to have a blunt knife than no knife. I mean, the Yazidis have they've not got a fair deal in any case. I mean, and the the Peshmerga were there and they were supposed to protect them, and then they the KDB Peshmerga just fled. Uh, immediately when ISIS came, and then the Iraqi uh, military was supposed to, you know, provide some sort of security, and it has it's been kind of haphazard. It's been ma- mainly PMUs in the area, and no one really wants them either. 
Uh, so you've got the YBS there. I mean, the, the, the what, what would be great would be if you had some sort of a, I don't know, some sort of a local police force or something like a, a, a branch of this, the federal uh, police, for example, but completely made up of local Yazidis. That would be great, right? Yeah, well, there are, I mean, there are some local, like, I mean, the YBS is not just all, I mean, when, when PKK did this video where they were like, we're, we're, we're leaving Sinjar now, and we're not there, it was like, literally, people I know there, like, even Gorilla were like, yeah, we just swap patches, you know what I mean, and then people will be very angry for me for saying that, I don't care, that's the truth, that's what happened, but also, there's a hell of a lot of Yazidis as well that were like, yeah, fuck yeah, like, defense, we need to defend ourselves now, so it's not, it's not true that it's just the PKK with different uniforms. Forms. There's a lot, like one of the, I think the main YBS commander is a Yazidi himself, you know? Yeah, I mean, they, they're definitely, I mean, they're probably made up of mostly Yazidis, to, to be honest. I mean, if you, if you look, but but that's kind of the reality of all these groups. If you look at Syria, uh, it, they, I mean, the Turkish military and the uh, politicians would love to say that, look, it's all PKK and look at this guy. I mean, here's a photo of him with Öcalan 20 years ago or whatever. Uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is, I mean, the the maybe the the top caterers or some sort of you know tra trainers or whatever they would be PKK for sure. But then you've got the rest that they're not, uh, and you've got these local groups that that I mean, this is why they're so good at, good at surviving, right? Because they build these local networks and they build up and they keep you know tra training new people and so on. So you've probably got a majority uh, Yazidi local group. But the the point is that are, are they providing security or are they kind of a, a good reason for Turkey to keep bombing? Um, I would I would I mean I would say the latter. I mean the Yazidis aren't going to have a, a, a nice time either way. But at least they wouldn't be bombed by Turkey at the same time. Yeah, it's a very um, just bad situation. Um, I I feel like we've let off. Um, I feel I feel like we no. I was gonna say I feel like we've let the KDP off a little bit here, and I feel like we really sh and the PUK. I feel like you know we really should mention the un unbelievable levels of corruption that are taking place there. And the first time I was ever made aware of this, right, I was in uh, Aski Kalak, right, uh, the Kazir Front, twenty fourteen. And it was a fucking, like, like literally, it was on the Mosul Road. ISIS was everywhere at that time. It's horrible. And I was out there with Peshmerga, like, you know, reporting and that. And they kept making, I had, like, these fucking shit suede boots on that I just, I didn't have any other boots. And they were joking with me, like, hey, can we have your boots? And I was like, what? Like, these are terrible for Frontline. And they were like, well, look at ours. And they, like, literally were wearing, like, you know, shoes that you would go to a wedding in. You know, just anything about from trainers or whatever. They had Milan missile launchers that they didn't have Milan rockets for. I remember I had a I had a joke at the time. I took a picture and I, I published the picture and was like, uh, you know, Peshmerga ready to fire the Milan. And loads of people were like, oh, dickhead, there's no rocket in it. It's like, yeah, that's the joke. Like, they, it was just, do you know what I mean? The whole thing, it was it was absolutely disgusting. These were Zeravani, right? These were like hardcore guys. Very, and they weren't deeply political in the sense, you know, they were like, we'll fight alongside our brothers from PKK, PUK, anywhere. You know, like they were just wanted to defend their land. And even then they hadn't been paid for months and months and months. So then it really made me sick when the last time I was in like Iraqi Kurdistan last year, the same situation was still going on. Peshmerga still not being paid, $100 million mansions being built in Miami or wherever it is by the KDP. PUK are just like, what is going on, man? Like, why? what is going on there? I mean, the, the corruption in the, the KRIs, uh, I mean, it's it, kind of beyond belief. So, some things are getting better, weirdly enough. I mean, it's this weird 
dynamic where they have to, I mean, they've got these auditors from abroad, they have to kind of present some sort of uh, new di direction because people, you know, foreign backers know that they're being really corrupt, right? So they they fix some stuff. Uh, they've uh, increased like internal revenues and stuff like that. But the main sources of corruption are still control of borders, control of main industries, uh, whatever kind of, if you build let's say you build a chicken factory or whatever, some local politician will come and say, okay, cool, uh, I'm part of this, I'm a silent, uh, you know, I'm a silent partner, and I get 20% or whatever. And that's usually how it goes down. And uh, they, they also used to control oil wells here and there, they still control some gas fields. And uh, they would funnel this money out, usually through Turkey, uh, into uh, the U.S., invested in, like you say, mansions, <laughs> apparently the real estate moguls, the Barzani's especially. And it it's unbelievably corrupt. And because they've kind of dollarized everything, right? So they've moved all their assets abroad. They don't really care that much about the internal economy either. So if everything goes bust, no one gets paid for eight months, there's no bread on the table, nothing happens. They're not really that affected because their money's abroad. Um, so if, if whatever happens, it, it's not that bad. You wouldn't see a Barzani starving or a Talibani starving because there hasn't been because there's been a blockade. It doesn't happen, um, and it probably ne never will. Uh, like you say with the Peshmerga, they, I mean the Peshmerga were inflated to begin with, so you had way too many people on the on the payroll to begin with. So even if they had a good budget they couldn't really get anything because it was like 150,000 or something Peshmerga at one point. It was a, like a ridiculously large number for such a small area. Um, and they wouldn't give, I mean, they wouldn't buy them good stuff. I mean, you wouldn't get, I, I remember my, when my brother enlisted, you'd get like, uh, uh, you have to buy most of your own stuff and you would anyway, you'd go to the black market and you'd get some, some stuff for yourself. You'd go to the shops basically to get a uniform. So it wasn't like they got anything, and they would still fight. So I mean, uh, there was a uh, there's a lot of bravery at, at that time. Even with I mean, even with Shingal, we we'll say that the KDP uh, Peshmerga ran, but they were ordered to run as well. It's not like all these guys were like, oh, it's ISIS, let's tuck tail, because they didn't in lots of other areas. They fought really bravely, but in Sinjar they just ran, and that's because they were told to. Yeah, I mean, the, the order came from, and well, I mean, Aziz Waisi and a lot of other people, I mean, it was, it was obvious who, who did it. They st still haven't been um, put to court. They still haven't been uh, put to justice. No, no, no one's been charged for what they did in Shingal. And all these guys had to run. Some people were crying, you know. Uh, they, they really didn't want to go. They, le they left everything. Um, it was awful. But but that's I mean that's that's the reality there. But that's not just it's not just Peshmerga. Peshmerga kind of let off easy in a way because you have to pay them. Otherwise they've got guns, right? So they they'll get paid something. But you've got uh, teachers that had hadn't been paid for nearly a year, right? They would still be be teaching in schools. They would still be uh, helping people out, but they would have gotten nothing. They'd be living on savings for nearly. Can you imagine nearly a year of living off savings? while still going to work every day. Yeah, and then and then the real slap in the face is I, I you know, like I say I have a lot of friends over there 
Um, and then the real slap in the face is when they then see uh, the social media profiles of some of the sons of the government and they're, they're shooting gold-plated AKs and they're driving around in big Mercedes whilst, like you say, teachers are not being paid. And then if they say anything to them, they're like, well, what do you want us to do? Like, just don't steal the money. Like, I, I'm very, like, I don't know, man. It's, it's, I just think it's so sad. Like, the people of Kurdistan, like you said, they're getting a raw deal from everywhere. You've got PKK in the mountains for Turkey bombs. You've got no money. No one's getting paid properly. Corruption everywhere. Infighting. ISIS. Iraq. Turkey. Iran. Like, it's just, it's real. Sh I don't know, man. It's, it's, a, it's a real shame because it's such a beautiful region with such a great people. I mean, it's a sad reality, but I mean, this is why you've got kind of the second wave of refugees as well from Iraqi Kurdistan. Because, I mean, the beginning you've got refugees from the war, but now you've got all of these young kids and they see no future whatsoever and they're trying to leave. And uh, everyone you talk to, basically, all the young people I, I talk to back home, I'd be like, hey, what are you, you know, what are your plans and so on? They'd be like, uh, you know, inshallah, the first time, you know, first chance I get, I'm leaving. I'm getting to Germany or Holland or wherever. Um, it's it's not it's not a place where you can uh, I mean and in relative terms this is much better than the rest of Iraq right at least uh, you've got some sort of a relative safety you're not going to get robbed on the street or kidnapped or anything like this um, but it's still it's not you know it's not a life uh, you would imagine that you would like you know and like you say you've got also these politicians that I mean the politicians thems politicians themselves they don't they try to keep private. Uh, everyone's been by Nechirvan's house in uh, Erbil. It's hard to miss. It's insanely big. It's like a block that he has just for himself. I drove past it last year, and uh, the driveway was like, we're passing his house now. And like two minutes later, he's like, we're still passing his house. <laughs> it's like, it's that big. It's unbelievably large. It's a huge compound for just one guy, right? And probably his close family. Uh, but you don't see images from the inside. I mean, I've never seen what it looks like inside. Uh, I haven't seen any any of his Instagram uh, pictures of of the uh, of a pool or anything like this. I haven't seen any of it. So the top caters they're really, really, really like uh, interested in making sure no one knows how much money they have. I mean, for obvious reasons as well, right? Uh, it's kind of a you don't want a French Revolution type scenario. But uh, then you've got the kids that aren't as bright, and uh, they'll. Take pictures in, uh, you know, a private jet, uh, their dad's private jet, and uh, they'll be wearing. I mean, they'll be fourteen years old or whatever, wearing a brightling, and be like, "Oh man, you know, I'm just cruising in my jet to Spain for a holiday, or whatever." And uh, they they'd be doing this in the height of the recession, and uh, it's insane. So I mean, that, that so th I'm not trying to make make the. KDP or PK or any of these groups uh, to be um, good guys or bad guys or anything like this. I'm, I'm just trying to say that, I mean, with the airstrikes and the, the PKK and the KOG, it's a complex kind of image because uh, if you talk to the people in, in the villages as well, I mean, it's pretty split. Some people would say, I mean, you, you had the video from PKK media afterwards. Uh, of uh, uh, Shaladzia, um, he had this uh, airstrike and some kid got killed and a lady whose uh, kid got injured as well said something like the guy who got killed is also my son you know um, all these guys are also my sons and uh, um, you know I, I grieve for you and all this stuff but you've also got uh, on the other hand you've got people in these villages that have been depopulated uh, that can't go back home uh, in the border areas, because Turkey keeps invading and 
keeps uh, air, uh, these airstrikes quite constant. You can't live in some areas anymore. So people have had to leave their farms, their villages, ancestral villages. I think something like, uh, I think it was 11 Assyrian villages or so on uh, on the border have been completely depopulated. I mean, they've got nowhere, nowhere to go. Uh, it, it's in, in, insane how much this has disrupted normal life. And you could blame the KDP for you know letting Turkey in, but at the same time they can't really do much, even if they they did they wanted the Turkey to leave. So th that's just my point. I'm not trying to paint a rosy rosy picture for everyone. It it just kind of it just sucks. No, no, I agree. I think that's why it's good to kind of really get in the weeds about it because, like you said, it's just like it just it just happens. It's not a good bad guy this that it's just happened, and it's like like you said, they just can't do anything about it. They can't stop them, and it's like. I don't know, man. I, I don't even know what to say about it. It just seems like I just I can't see it lasting that long. Unfortunately, do you know what I mean? Like the the whole kind of autonomous, even well, autonomous maybe only in the word now because of this. I just uh, unfortunately I can't see it lasting. I do think maybe Turkey will. I don't even think they'll do like a big push and take it over. It will just be like within a few years before you know it. Like oh, they're on the outskirts of Erbil now. Like you know what I mean? It's inch by inch. So it's it's in, I think they've got a, about a hundred k's to get Kandil uh, um, proper, and uh, until then, I mean, it's operation after operation. So maybe in like five years time, ten years time, they they might be uh, close to Kandil, um, and by then the PK can't move into Turkey any anyway. So I mean, what's the point? But um, but at, at the same time, like I'm. I think like most people, I'm hopeful that change happens within Turkey because it's it's not change. I mean, the the PKK is the PKK. They're hard, they've, they're quite stubborn in some areas. They probably won't change some things. And uh, I mean, I, I won't say that's a completely bad thing. If it wasn't for the PKK pushing uh, the agenda, even if they, uh, it wouldn't be for peaceful means, you've got Kurd. Kurds still existing in Turkey. I mean, they they today you can say you're a Kurdish person. You you can uh, in some places speak Kurdish openly. Uh, I mean that that always shifts, doesn't it? But uh, you've um, you, they exist to to a certain degree uh, openly, and they wouldn't have been able to do that if there wasn't a Kurdish movement, uh, which PKK is a part, right? Um, so so you, you can't you can't blame them for doing something stubbornly. Uh, and just not existing isn't kind of a choice for them. So my hope is that something happens within Turkey, maybe democratization of some some sort, whatever, uh, that opens up the possibility for peace. Because no one really wants to keep fighting. Who wants to keep fighting? Uh, no one wants constant war. People want the, the freedom to speak their own language, for the kids to learn their own language, uh, to not be at a checkpoint every day of the week be able to say what ethnicity you are, where you're from, you know, people want these rights, um, they're, they're ba basic rights, every other Turkish citizen has them, why not the Kurdish citizen as well, so I mean, it's, uh, they've got them in Iraqi Kurdistan, did Iraq, you know, did, is Iraq no more, if anything, Iraq is kind of starting to heal in some areas, and it's not, It, it if it did break up, it wouldn't be because Kurds broke it up. Right, so uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a moot point. Um, I'm hoping for peace. I'm hoping for peace in Turkey, peace in Turkey, peace in Iraq. 
<laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe one day. Um, uh, and what what the what has been the UN response to all this? You know, like because obviously America has a very vested interest in um, Iraqi Kurdistan. They have bases there. They do a lot of their operations out there, anti Daesh operations, what have you. But again, I mean, I mean, you know, my personal opinion is that the UN is it doesn't really have any legs. You know, just deeply concerned. But uh, what what do you think? Like, what are they actually saying? What do you think they might do if Turkey does push? I mean, the UN, I'm not so sure of because the UN is. I mean, it's paper tiger. It doesn't really do much. But uh, yeah, or, or NATO, oh, I should say. I mean, I, w- I would say NATO will always do what NATO always does. It says it's uh, you know it's uh, respect. It respects Turkey's legitimate security concerns. That's literally, I mean, word for word, whatever sta- statement you'll find about Turkey and the PKK, it'll use this term. Uh, no matter what it does, uh, even if it's stuff that NATO would kind of wouldn't necessarily agree with, it would still use that term. So I, I but but what's interesting is is how the U.S. responded, and uh, the U.S. Uh, you had Pompeo, which is the secretary Secretary of State. He released a statement saying basically that uh, you know uh, we uh, fully support Turkey and its fight against the PKK and all this stuff. So it's it's kind of ironic because I mean you've got the the U.S. they support the the SDF and within them the the YPG in um, Syria and they've been protecting them to a certain degree. I mean they didn't do very well recently against uh, Turkish aggression, whereas in in Iraq they support what Turkey's doing, even if it's violating uh, Iraqi territorial inter- integrity. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of a weird response. I don't think you're going to get any real criticism from them. And at the end of the day, I, th- I don't think anyone's going to be able to do anything. Uh, even if it, the, the only ones that could possibly do anything is Iraq themselves. And the Kurdistan regional government has been kind of... Um, it hasn't wanted Iraq on its border anyway because of like like I said before, the, these borders are both crucial to, to sustaining or or living a, a KRI uh, that isn't fully dependent on on uh, the central government in Baghdad, but it also is completely crucial to uh, these parties' uh, tariffs and uh, own dealings, right? So their own kind of corruption it wouldn't be able to happen to the, to the same degree without. Um, controlling the borders so you, you wouldn't be able to do that so you, you've got this kind of sad response where the, the KDP or the, the KRG is rather trying to do something to stop Turkey uh, taking the border by laying some border guards to there but at the same time you can't let federal police take over all the borders yeah it's just such a yeah it, i mean it's such a sad like hard situation really um i think with that we've we've probably pissed off just about every single faction that there is in uh kurdistan which is good you know you don't want to be easy on anyone um anyway um aries before we go um tell us about your podcast you got you know csa i think it's great i've been listening to it tell us uh, our listeners about that because you know if they like popular front they're gonna like this yeah i mean csa is uh, I mean I, I got a little bit a few years ago I was trying to look for Kurdish podcasts and I found a few of them and they're good uh, at what they do I think um, but I wanted something more political and I think a lot of uh, kind of I mean Kurds kind of get ignored to a certain degree if you look at any panels like political panels and things like that you'll find you know an American or a Turkish person an Arab and so on 
and uh, you've got the Arabic uh, academic talking about Ar uh, Arabic issues and so on, but you don't really have many Kurds presenting the Kurdish kind of point of view on things. Uh, and they don't really get to ask questions either from a Kurdish perspective. It has to be very general. So I thought it would be interesting to have a podcast dedicated to Middle East politics and Middle East issues, but from a Kurdish perspective, like what are we interested in? What affects us? So I thought uh, I'd, I'd start it out. I mean, uh, honestly, I don't like the, the sound of my own voice. I don't think I'm particularly talented <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, but I like to ask questions. I like to learn more. And I think uh, through, I've, I've been able to do it so far. I've had really good guests. I've had guys like Aaron Lund explain uh, Syria and um, how why it's so hard to talk to the regime. I've had you on talking about, I mean, we've got a, an episode that's really good. People love it, um, about the Hendrik War and uh, Turkish prison. And uh, I mean, it's it's been really good so far. So I'm, I'm really happy with it. I've got an episode coming out tomorrow, actually, on uh, P uh, that's Tuesday. Uh, on uh, PMUs, like uh, um, popular mobilization units in, in Iraq and how they're built up, where they come from and what the future of PMUs is with Fanar Haddad, who's uh, uh, the guy who wrote um, uh, Sectarianism in the Middle East. So it's, uh, it's, it's been really good. Yeah, man, I think it's great. Um, and where can people uh, listen to it? How can they, you know, get to it? It's, it's on all major uh, podcast um, kind of channels. So uh, the, the platform, sorry. Um, so you've got it on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Um, and if you kind of prefer to, to not use any of those, uh, you've got it at Anchor as well. So Anchor FM. Um, I think it's, I'm, I'm going to look it up actually while, while we talk, uh, because I can't remember exactly what I use. I think I use my own name. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? But it, it's, it's spelled, so it's S-I-Y... A -S, -E -T, a S E T. Yeah. Right? If you search for C S E T S I Y A S E T on Anchor, you'll find it. What does it mean? Uh, it actually it means politics in Kurdish and Turkish, and it's f the feminine word I think for um, for politics in Arabic as well. So it's uh, I, yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty feminine, so I thought I could handle that one. All right, mate. Um, and where can people uh, get hold of you uh, on Twitter and whatever? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I am on Twitter. Uh, I am on Twitter at at Kader Ariz. Uh, so it's at K A D E R A R I Z. So that's uh, that's my handle. Brilliant. Thank you very much, mate. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. That was Ariz Kader explaining to us why Turkey is bombing Iraqi Kurdistan and trying to go into as much detail as possible about the incredibly complicated situations between the tribalism, the factionism, all of that in the KRG. Uh, it is a bad situation, but hopefully, you know, it can kind of work itself out. I don't know. Um, yeah, if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash popularfront. That is how we survive. We are completely grassroots, 100%. We do not have any corporate advertising. We do not have any rich benefactors, nothing like that. Everything we do is independent. Even the people that sponsor the episodes, we make sure that they're an independent company and they're not fucking over their workers, all of that. We like to keep it like that, you know, grassroots, fairer, showing like the big legacy media that like, you know, 
but we can go around them like fuck them. So yeah, if you like that and you want us to keep going and you want more Popular Front content, go to patreon.com slash popular front. If you go there for $5 a month, you get bonus episodes. At the very least, there's two a month. Last month, I think I did four. It's basically like Popular Front 2.0, you know, like second podcast, basically. Um, last week, we just uh, had one go out where it's uh, a whole episode about jihadist themed airsoft <clears throat> just nearly died uh, jihadist themed airsoft and isis merchandise in indonesia it's weird man like very weird but yeah bonus episodes there's loads there i think there's like i think it's what like pushing 60 odd 70 odd now i don't know um, also for the for the ten dollars a month you get discounts on merchandise, you get access to the community discord, you get episodes early before everyone else, you get um, something I'm not talked to anyone about yet, but I might as well mention it here. I think we're gonna be doing something. It's kind of kind of tongue in cheek, but actually serious. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, it's gonna be called too cool for J school, right? J school being journalism school. Now, I'm not saying don't go to journalism school. I'm not saying don't go to college or uni, but I didn't do any of that. And I, I think there is definitely ways around it. You definitely, definitely do not have to do that. So we're gonna start up like a little kind of, just a like very like rough video series i think where it'd be like me some other people like around popular front just saying like here's some advice here's what you can do with this you know oh if you want to do i don't know um you want to look up uh geolocation here's some tools to do it oh here's some good books you want to do it's something i want to start up soon so yeah too cool for j school <laughs> it's very dumb i know but it's not very dumb it's going to make you smarter i guess if you want to get involved in journalism uh, specifically conflict journalism but for any journalism really so yeah that will be on there as well um 30 dollars you get your name on the episodes you get to like request episodes get to see like input behind the scenes shit now and then as well um yeah there's all sorts man so patreon.com slash popular front this episode our sponsors are oracle coffee shop they're in portland oregon usa they're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Check out them, definitely. Oracle Coffee Shop, good friends of ours. Um, another coffee shop sponsoring us, there's two. These guys are very cool as well. Grind Core House. They're a pair of um, independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. One in the South, one in the West. Check them out on social media. Go to at Grind Core House. You'll see them. Cool bunch of people. Definitely tell them Popular Front sent you. Um, and there was something else as well that I wanted to shout out on this episode to uh, Dermot Cosgrove. Look him up on Twitter at Dermot, D-E-R-M-O-T-N. Cosgrove, C-O-S-G-R-O-V-E, Dumb and Cosgrove. Uh, shouting him out because basically he's doing this uh, charity situation. It's in aid of Irish dogs for the disabled. They provide assistance to uh, assistance dogs to mostly disabled kids. They do it completely free. They don't get government grants or funding or any of that. They're completely independent, just like us. Um, so they're completely reliant on donations. It costs like 15,000 euros to train one dog. Um, so yeah, the Dermot is doing this crossing uh, up to Iceland, I believe, um, to raise uh, money for the charity. So if you go to his Twitter or go to twitter.com slash dogs for disable one, you will see it there. There's information. Very good lad. Very good cause. Definitely do check that out. 
If you want to follow us on social medias, go to... Oh, it's all fucking different. I've got all different handles and everything, man. Uh, Instagram.com slash popular.front. Be aware we have perhaps the worst, most toxic comment section on the whole of Instagram. I don't have time to police it. I'm not going to start censoring it. But just remember, the scumbags that are often in the comments have nothing to do with us. They do not represent us. Um, but yeah, go and see it. It's fucking chaos out there. Instagram.com slash popular.front uh, Twitter is popularfrontco or you can follow me at Jake underscore Hanrahan H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N youtube.com slash popularfront all our docs are there there will be a new doc very soon you are now entering Free Cap Hill which is basically the inside look into what was the so-called autonomous zone in Seattle and in the US amongst the protests sadly some people were killed there shootings it's all mad we've got a doc our lads are on the ground for everything so yeah youtube.com slash popularfront I think that's everything on social media. Oh, fuck no, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, if you want to look cool and support Popular Front, go to popularfront.shop. That is the website. The zine is sold out, so you can't get that. I know everyone's saying, please do reprints. We gave everyone a month to do it, and I gave an extra 24 hours, man. I, I can't just keep holding off the deliveries for the reprints, you know what I mean? But there will be an issue too next month, the month after, so don't worry about that. Uh, popularfront.shop. There's new t-shirts, two new t-shirts on there. Um, there's the Watchlist Gang, which is a mad one. Like, look at it. It's like, some people think it's ugly. Some people think it's the best thing I've ever seen. It's a monster in many ways. Just go to it. Um, and if you are on the Patreon on the uh, ten dollar tier, remember you get discount codes. So check the Patreon. I've already put the discount codes up there. Uh, I think that's everything. Um, probably. I don't know. Anyway, thank you very much to our higher tier Patreons. Uh, they are Ian. Froese or Freese, please let me know how to say that, mate. I think I might have said that wrong. Ian Froese, maybe? I don't know. Sorry, apologies. Do message me and let me know the pronunciation. Um, James Cully, Michael Akakan. Again, if I am saying your names wrong, please tell me. Ethan Reyes. Uh, he messaged me and said, you you either have said it right, you've said it right. I can't remember. Reyes, I think it was. Or was it Reese, Reese's or something? Oh, fuck, I'll check it, man. Sorry, mate. Uh, Ethan Reyes, I think it was. Or Reese. Anyway, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, uh, Chandler Marlin, Alex Northrop, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Newski, Maxwell Burke, B R E N 86, like a, um, like a robot. <laughs> um, Anthony Kabarak. Oh, that was going to say fucking congratulations to Anthony Kabarak. I don't know if you want me to say it out loud, but just if you're hearing this, mate, congratulations. Good luck with everything. You're a fucking top guy. Hope everything works out. Uh, anyway, to carry on. Uh, Don Wayne, Liam Williams, Fragile Feeling, Chris Cusimano, Sebastian from the Discord, uh, Degenerate Alpha Zero, Chris Davis, Trey Nance, Charlie, Olin Thorne, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, uh, Prashant Singh, Azad, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Christina Rivetti, Josh Stifle, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Emiliano, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Ari from the Discord, uh, Young Wasabi, Sarushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, Scartoon Music, Stephen Davila, Patrick Bronte, um, Dan Dunham, uh, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvenek, 
Kubel, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, uh, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, Daniel Shearer, and Joanna Stocker. Thank you all very much. Top tier patrons, really appreciate it, man. Like I always say, without you lot, I'd be fucked. It would all just fall apart. So thanks uh, very much. Uh, again, please do support Popular Front. Go to patreon.com slash popularfront or if you want to do it a different way, go to our website, uh, popularfront.co slash support. There's Bitcoin, there's donations, there's all sorts of ways. Thank you for everyone who has been doing the donations and all that recently. Like, I put out a ton of content over Corona times and everyone was locked down because I knew everyone would be bored and would, would want new shit. And, you know, people have seen that and have been like, yeah, boom, like, let's get on board, Patreon, everything. So really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, music in this episode, the intro is by Home and the outro, as always, is by Sam Black, aka Son of Old. Listen to his music at samblackpf.com. Thank you.